there's an awful lot of what I call 3.22 in the morning moments, lying awake wondering if you're mad. But then when you do finally get back to sleep and then wake up again, you know that you're not mad and you know you're going to carry on even if you are. So I've learned the supreme importance of determination. Hi, I'm Beldit Mankus. Welcome to The Purposeful Strategist. The podcast that shifts the conversation about purpose and strategy from what organizations should do to what business leaders are doing and what they've learned along the way. In this episode, I'll be joined by Paul Campbell, founder and CEO of Amazing Media, who shares with us how he used his personal interests and experiences to define Amazing's purpose. He explains how they've provided freedom, connection, and control to their artists and their audiences, becoming a launch pad for new music and new musicians globally. He also describes how he's been able to keep Amazing true to who they are while evolving their business model over time. Welcome, Paul. Thank you for joining us here on The the Purposeful Strategist. Uh, You're the founder and CEO of Amazing Media Group. I just wonder if you could tell us a bit about yourself and also about what Amazing Media Group does. You bet. And thank you very much for your welcome. And it's very nice to be here. Uh, I'll start with me and then I'll move on to Amazing Media because I started before it. Uh So I'm English, born and raised in the northeast of England. Uh, I went to Oxford University and then joined the BBC as a management trainee. Um, And I worked for the BBC as a radio and TV producer for seven years and then finally decided actually I wasn't really a corporate type. So I became a freelance TV producer in London and then a few years later started my first business. And I've been running businesses ever since. So I've been doing entrepreneurial things since, ooh, 1989. But as well as all that stuff, I've also been um, a working musician all my life. I'm a a classically trained percussionist. I almost went into music full time, but music has always been one of the threads through my life that's been most important. I still play drums professionally. I play in professional symphony orchestras every now and again, and I play a lot of jazz, playing four big bands at present. I suppose one of the benefits of being an entrepreneur is you schedule your own calendar, you know, so you can kind of, you know, make it work. Anyway, so Mm -hmm. essentially the Amazing Media Group is about putting all of that together. It's about using the musical experience that I have, the fact that I've played on big stages with people who are much more talented than I am, but also I've run a business for a long time and I've worked in media a long time. And that led to um, one of those sort of light bulb moments in 2006. At the time, I was running an online educational business, which I'd founded at the turn of the millennium which rejoiced in the name of Amazing Learning, a brand name which I'm happy to say I never chose. It was someone else's idea to call the business Amazing. And I went, oh, that's a good idea. I wonder if that might be the brand that I've been looking for. So we had Amazing Learning, and um, I kind of kept on being interested in developments in the music industry uh, and in media. And I was reading a biography of Steve Jobs. And bear in mind, this was before the launch of uh, even the iTunes store. Uh, And he was quoted as saying in the book, when we launched the iPod, we were surprised how successful it was. We just thought it was cool. We never imagined it would become as big as it was. But then I realized, he said, it's because everybody loves music. And when I read that sentence, a light bulb went on in my head and I thought to myself, I wonder if you'll need a record label in the future. 
Now, today, it's a bit of a truism that you possibly don't need a record label. In those days, it was a reasonably original thought that not many people that I'd come across had had. And that led in 2007 to the launch of what we're doing now, the Amazing Media Group, which is, in a sense, an attempt to answer that question and to do so in a way which is fit for purpose in the modern music industry. Now, that's 15 years ago. And, of course, the music industry has changed very substantially since 2007 when I started Amazing Media. But in a way, what's happened sort of is the industry kind of gone away from us and then come back again to the straight furrow that we've been remorselessly ploughing for all this time, which is as follows. Let's try and help emerging musicians to make a career. And that's what we do. We attract, curate, promote and assist emerging musicians and musicians who are not signed to major labels to try and grow their careers. And we do it in an ethical way. We do it in a multi-platform way. And we've been lucky enough over the years to find quite a few artists now who are now well-known and play stadium gigs and win, you know, awards, uh, Grammys and, and Brit Awards, but who were completely unheard of when they uploaded a song to our platform. Mm -hmm. And, and I mean, you're a business, not a charity. So how does the revenue get generated? Well, we have a number of different ways of making the revenue. Um, the first of them that we had was by licensing the music that's uploaded to our platform to use as background music in stores, in shops. Mm. Mm -hmm. Of course, in the UK, you'll be familiar that there are license fees that need to be paid for that to the Performing Rights Society. And in many cases, particularly in the charity sector, people pay those fees through gritted teeth. Or sometimes they don't pay them at all because they don't know they exist and then they get sued. And that's created a demand in the marketplace for a system which is perceived to be fairer, more ethical, and frankly, cheaper. So we started off originally supplying music from new musicians, of course, with their consent, to particularly charity sector stores, where they paid us for the music. The music was not licensed to the PRS, and therefore completely outside all of those rules. And we shared the revenue with the musicians. And in many cases, we were sending checks to musicians who had never earned a penny in their entire lives, which was a really lovely thing to be able to do. We still do that, although now we do it indirectly via a wholesaler, who they have the direct relationship with the stores. We no longer only do PRS-exempt music, or as it's watching internationally, PRO, Performing Rights Organization Music. We now do some PRO-registered stuff as well, because there's a demand for it for people who want fresh, new, interesting music. So that's the first revenue stream. The second revenue stream that we developed was where musicians pay a subscription to be part of our system. Now, the way it works is you can upload one tune for free, and we will listen to it on its merits, and we will try and promote it and help it entirely based on musical quality. But if you pay a princely sum of three bucks a month, you can upload an unlimited amount of music and an unlimited number of videos, and you can make an online profile, and you can sell your music using our platform. And if you choose to do that, you keep, as the artist, 100% of the money. And the aim of this is to create a win-win where musicians make a profit by being part of Amazing because they make money out of it, and they also get to be promoted. And the bit I omitted to say, which is rather crucial, is we have three ways to promote it. So we do audio, video, and live. So we have two radio stations, one based in the UK, one based in the States, 
that play 100% new music 24-7. And we've been doing that every hour of every day since 2009. That radio station, the first one we launched was in the UK. It's called, unsurprisingly, Amazing Radio, because there's a bit of a brand strategy going on here, you may spot. And over the years, we've discovered a lot of artists who are now famous. I'll reel off the list and I'm sure you'll know every single one of them. Um, and I have it off by heart. Alt-J, Daughter, Churches, Heim, London Grammar, Bastille, Skrillex, Azealia Banks, The 1975, Royal Blood, Royal Teeth, Rag and Bone Man, Dua Lipa, Sam Fenden and Dean Shah, wow. Arlo Parks, Fontaine's DC, and others. Yeah, Those are all people that we discovered who had never had any promotion on any radio station anywhere in the world until they uploaded, in many cases they uploaded themselves individually you know, as struggling musicians. And our people listened to it, mm-hmm. thought it was good, and put it on the radio. Mm. So that's the first, that's the audio bit. What we're now also doing is adding something called Amazing TV. It's kind of thing MTV when MTV was good. The strap line we intend to use for it is music television is back and it's amazing. Mm-hmm. So in our system, we have many tens of thousands of music videos, which are also uploaded. And the purpose of Amazing TV is to give that access to an audience as well and the final bit is live music so we uh, curate concerts which take place in the states in the uk and we also own a music festival called cmj which historically used to take place in the lower east side and brooklyn of new york every october and has done since the 80s it's where lady gaga mumford and sons arcade fire and numerous other artists were discovered so those are the three things that we offer to musicians, promotion on the radio, promotion on TV, and promotion in concerts and festivals. They pay us to be considered to be part of that. In the process, as I say, they make money. And of course, by adding TV and festivals and concerts to what we do, we augment the revenue streams, which was your original question. So we're now looking at advertising, sponsorship, and ticket sales as well. So what you end up with is a multifaceted media company with multiple platforms and multiple revenue streams, all focused on one thing, which is attracting and promoting the best new music in the world. Mm-hmm. I, Paul, I can hear in, in what you're saying some really strong themes in there around purpose and and also around strategy, which I want to get into in a minute. But before that, you know, how would you define organizational purpose? Different people often mean very different things by that. Organizational purpose, I think, is having a clear idea of why you get up every morning Mm -hmm. uh, and what it is that you're trying to achieve as an organization. We are trying to become the number one place in the world where new music can be found. And we try to do it in a different way from most other people who do that. We're fundamentally on the side of the musician. It's because I'm a musician myself. And I understand how musicians think, you know, there's a level of cynicism, skepticism, fear from musicians because from time immemorial, they've been ripped off. So we very much approach from the perspective, what does a musician need and what can we do to help them? That's our organizational purpose. In the process of doing that, we want to build a global brand. It's no coincidence that we have a silly name. We want the word amazing to be designated as a brand, which stands for an ethical, inclusive and global business that helps people who need help. I say people rather than musicians, because the ultimate vision of this is to move beyond music to help everyone who has the ability to create content. So our organizational purpose is to help 
musicians to get discovered, in the process to build a brand to help other kind of creatives to get discovered as well. So ultimately, what I would like is that the word amazing becomes a brand which helps people who are creative to make a living. Now, I don't know if that's an organizational purpose, but it, it's what gets me off in the morning. Seems to me it kind of guides and shapes your strategy a bit. But before we, we get into the strategy sort of end of it, I just wonder if you could describe how you came to that purpose, you know, the mechanics of it. Was it you sitting in a room by yourself? Were there other people involved? Did it evolve over time? Or was it an insight of inspiration? You know, how did that purpose you've just described so clearly, how did that come about? It's a great question and intriguing to try and answer it as well, I think. So I think that it started with that light bulb moment that I mentioned, the Steve Jobs thing. And that led to a lot more thinking, which was predominantly done in the early days by me um, as the founder of the business um, and derived from my own background and experience, which I guess is how it always happens. You know, the fact that I'd worked in media, um, the fact that I'm a musician, but also the bit I didn't mention is that when I was running my first business in London, which was a production company making initially television for other people, it was one of the earliest adopters in the world of digital technology. Uh, you know, we started editing video on computers when it was almost impossible to do. And the consequence of that is that I've spent a lot of time thinking about the impact of digital technology on the creative process. So I think I sort of started with a, I would say, a moment of sudden realization that there was an idea in this. And then over a period of many years, it was iterated, evolved, discussed, argued about with colleagues, with friends, with my family, to the point where, you know, now I think we know where we are. And it's sort of looking back now, it feels like it's been a logical continuum that we've basically started with a single idea and then thought it through and realized it applies in other areas as well. I mean, originally we weren't expecting to do video or live, for example. Originally we were going to work with unsigned artists only, but now we work with all artists. Originally it was just going to be emerging artists, people who are new to the industry, but then over a period of time, you realize, well, actually, if you're an established artist who's no longer a signed artist, you actually have a bigger problem than a new artist because of ageism. So actually, what we do now is we work in every available platform, and our fundamental remit is to help. That's an evolution in delivery terms, but I think it's consistent to the original light bulb moment. Mm -hmm. And one, one of the things, I mean, I sometimes try and make a distinction between purpose and strategy. And for some organizations, it's very hard to see much difference between the two. It does feel to me from what you've said that the two sort of evolve together. I think that's right. I think it, it's what I said about thinking it through. You know, if you have a purpose and you're clear eyed about that purpose and never waver from it, that I think leads to the development of strategy. I don't see if it could be the other way around. I don't know. You're an expert on this. I'm not. I, I've, I've certainly, some of my guests have described how they worked out their strategy and then people started saying, that's great, but what about your purpose? <laughs> I think it can happen in lots of different ways. I wonder if we could kind of just almost zoom in on one decision that feels to me sort of an interesting one, which is this one to go into live. You know, how did that come about? Was it opportunistic or had you been thinking, well, we're, we're doing music, we're doing videos, what would the next logical step be? How did that all occur? Yeah, good question. I mean, originally, I didn't really want to do live because 
I like virtual businesses where you can scale them easily. And you could argue that live is the antithesis of that. But the reason for going into live comes down to one very simple thing. Two things, actually. Number one, musicians like to play live. It validates and improves what they do because you get the audience feedback. So we would be sort of missing a trick in promotional terms if we weren't doing it. And secondly, which is probably yet more important, is there's a lot of money in live now. You know, that's where most musicians make their money now is actually from performing live. So we would be remiss in our mission to help people if we weren't also doing live. And you'll be unsurprised to hear that every time we do a concert, we film it. We promote it on our radio stations. So, you know, radio promotes TV, promotes live, promotes radio, and so on and so forth. So it's a it, what I would hope is a virtuous circle. And, of course, by capturing a concert, you're able to disseminate it to people who weren't able to be there, which means you're able to maximize the revenue opportunity for us and for the musicians and the promotional opportunity. There's a period in my earlier career when I was a TV producer when I produced hugely expensive television programs of, of concert performances of music. You know, seven camera outside broadcast from Brixton Academy in London with Rolling Stones mobile parked outside to record the audio for posterity, you know, which was wonderful. But on the other hand, you can literally do it on a laptop now, you know. I mean, I said I'm a musician. I, I play drums. One of the things I play is in a jazz trio. And weirdly, we were allowed to carry on rehearsing during lockdown because the British government rules said, if you're a professional musician, provided you're socially distanced, you're allowed to do this. So we rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed and we couldn't play. And then one day we were suddenly able to perform in a jazz club in the local city, which is, I live near a town called Newcastle in the northeast of England. And we went to the number one jazz club there and we did a gig. There was nobody in the audience. They weren't allowed to come. There was a sound guy, a camera guy, and a guy with the key. And we had more people watching that pay-per-view online than could have been in the venue. And they were all over the world. And I looked at it with sort of horrified fascination to see how the guys were doing this. And they literally had a Mac, a USB interface, and some microphones and some very cheap cameras that were fixed cameras. And they were cutting pictures, you know, using a thing that looked like it could have been designed for children to play with, which when I was in television would have been a Grass Valley Vision Mixer that would have cost hundreds of thousands of pounds. And the picture quality of that was better than the best professional television outside broadcast I ever worked on when I was in telly. And it just makes you think the ability to capture a performance and disseminate it is so prevalent now and so cheap to do, it creates new opportunities. You know. So back to your question. It would be dumb for us not to do live because people want to perform in front of an audience. Audiences want to see them. There's revenue there. And also because of this multifaceted way we try and approach things, we can create digital assets in the process, which we can then monetize and promote in other ways. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess one of the other questions in my mind about how it all works is you've talked about new music. And I, I'm just sort of wondering, do artists, at whatever stage they get involved with amazing do they then sort of tend to stay they might they might also do other things or is it more at least for some kind of a launch pad and once they get far enough in their career it's like thank you very much thanks paul appreciate the help <laughs> well with devastating strategic insight you've discovered the flaw in our model uh, if it's a flaw um yes what happens is we discover alt j um alt j get signed by uh, probably an independent label and a major label. That's normally the pattern. And then they go, bye, thank you. 
So obviously we're dumb, aren't we? Because we're allowing it to go. Well, it depends, really. You know, the business model of the music industry is essentially venture capital. You make money in the one in 10, and the nine in 10 that fail are paid for by the success. Our business model is different. Our business model is that we make money in the 10 in 10. Everybody who would like to be Alt-J or whoever else gets involved in our system and potentially pays us. So actually, it's a fundamentally different approach to model, and because it's scalable, um, we can make money from that. Having said that, we are in the process right now of extending our business model in order to address the very thing you're talking about. We're negotiating to acquire a business at the moment, which will bring management and publishing and record label and so forth. I talked before about extending the logic. This extends the logic to the ultimate position. And why would we do that? Well, we don't need to because the business is viable without doing that, where we just say goodbye. And of course, by saying goodbye to an Alt-J or a Dua Lipa, we get reflected glory, which means that everyone who would like to become an Alt-J or a Dua Lipa comes to our system. So we could stop there, but I think it makes sense because we would like to become the business that redefines how the music industry works. The problem with waving goodbye to people is you're actually waving goodbye to people who are about to start swimming with sharks. You know, they might become in the short term successful and wealthy and drive around in limos and private planes. But in the end, the standard pattern in the music industry is that musicians end up pissed off with the deal that when they were young and inexperienced. And you know, uh, the world is full of examples of artists trying to back out of deals that they wished they'd never signed. So it's actually, an, again, an ethical imperative for us to extend our model to be able to offer people those deals mm -hmm. where we won't rip them off, we will help them, and we won't become a major label. That's not part of the strategy. That's a different thing. But when they do go from us to the major label, we'll help them negotiate the contract so they don't get ripped off and we'll have a carry. That's the last bit that we're adding to the model, which we're doing right now. Yeah. As you can tell, I think it's a fascinating business model, but also the way you've woven the sort of ethical purpose into it. Have you found that there's some percent of the people who get involved who they don't break out and become some superstar, but they earn enough of a living, maybe in the midst of a number of other things they're doing. You know, it's sort of an ongoing relationship. It's not, oh, I'll give music a go, well, that didn't work out, move on. I'm sure there's some of those. But are, is there a growing group of people who they found enough of an audience, they're, you know, they're kind of making a go of it? Absolutely right. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's also quite an important lesson as well, because not everybody wants to be a superstar. You know, some people have kids and other jobs that they like doing, you know, and I think it's, it really comes down to why is it that an artist would write a song in the first place and want to record it? It's because they feel they have something to say. And if you have something to say, you'd like someone to hear what you have to say. You'd like to be able to get feedback on it and, and improve, criticise and so on. And some people want adulation. So, yes, I like that sort of mixed economy of it, you know. It's very it's very validating to be able to go and play with a professional symphony orchestra and get paid for it, uh, or to be able to do a jazz gig and lots of people all over the world are watching it online. You know, So again, it's about, in some cases, the people who get involved, they just want to be able to make enough money to buy the ultimate home studio or that guitar they wanted. You know? And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. You're right that those people would be probably disinclined to leave because they're not going to become superstars. 
But what's wrong with that? You know, I mean, we, we're actually working on a podcast at the moment with some wonderful hip-hop artists based in New Orleans called Global Warming. They have an idea for a podcast, which we're going to do with them, which is called The Middle Class Musician. Ah, using brilliant. middle class in the American sense, yes, right? Yes. People who can earn a living yeah. from music, you know, not necessarily be superstars, but also not be on the breadline. Yeah. You know, and I think that's an important aspect of, of what we're trying to do as well. Paul, that's really interesting. If you look at the bigger picture, I think one of the things that's happening is digital technology is reinventing what communities mean. They're not so physically, geographically based anymore. And I could certainly see how musicians might develop an audience that becomes a bit of a community, not the only defining thing, you know, and that could be a very interesting patchwork of the future of lots of different musicians who have a following, who may know a few of your other musicians, but maybe not. Yeah, really interesting. Yes, I think that's exactly right. And of course, it works on the other side as well, that people who are into new music, you know, and there's a community there as well. Um, you know, I was interesting, I was reading something in the Guardian newspaper yesterday about people who are cutting the cord of streaming services and stopping using the Spotify's and Amazons and, and so on, because it was really interesting. They were saying that they felt sort of almost dirty at using a Spotify. Four or five people in interviewed. All we ever get, they said, is the single. We never hear the album. All we're ever doing is sort of having a light engagement with an artist. And then another one, another one, another one. You know, the way the algorithms always churn up all this thing, um, one after another after another. So these people are stopping using streaming services and in some cases deliberately making it hard to listen to music so that they listen to music. You know, I'm of an age where I remember when to listen to music, you sat down consciously to do something. The advantage of the iPod, the earbuds and so on, is that you can listen to music in lots of places. It's really convenient. The problem is, do you listen to it? You know, so I think that there is intriguingly a bit of an emerging sense from some people, it's not ubiquitous, of course, that music should be more valued mm. and you should pay more attention to it and possibly pay more money for it. And I think there's the beginning of, of a kind of a sea change in the response to the big beer moths of the industry in favor of things which are ethical and which look after people. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if you look over the 15 years or so that, that you've been pursuing this, uh, along that journey, what's been most surprising to you? Um, that we're still here? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it has been like pushing water uphill for a lot of it. I've often thought if this ever becomes, you know, properly well known and becomes the brand I want it to be, if I ever write a book about it, I'll probably call it Flying in the Face of Logic. The furious, remorseless drive <laughs> to make this thing work that I think applies to most real entrepreneurs. You know, the reality is entrepreneurs are driven people who are passionate about what they do and will never give up and who are not doing it for money. You know, I'm not doing this for money. I mean, it would be wonderful to be able to buy a yacht, not that I would, um, one day. But I'm doing it to see if it's possible to do it. That's the drive that most real entrepreneurs have. Mm, mm. So back to your question. So one of the surprising things is, which I'm very grateful for, is that we are still here and we are still going. And, and the reason that we're still here is I've been fortunate enough to 
meet some very smart and very thoughtful people who invested in it. And one of them is called Steve Case, who's one of our investors, who's the founder of AOL, America Online. Another one is Sting. So when you get people like that investing, that's validation and that's surprising, to go back to your question. That's one thing. The other thing was when we first launched Amazing Radio, um, which was in 2009, as I said, prior to that, we just had a website that was kind of conceptually like SoundCloud. But I kept thinking, how can we do things to improve the offering to musicians and build this? And I remembered the fact that when I was 14 years old, I stood in my mother's kitchen in the northeast of England and heard me playing the drums on the radio. And I know what it feels like to hear yourself as a musician on the radio. You never forget it. And also, radio historically has always been where music discovery has happened. You know, John Peel being a case in point, the mythical BBC Radio 1 DJ who used to play new music all the time. Um, someone once described it as 24-7 John Peel. We mix the genres up. You know, we, we're not, you know, thematically linked in the way that commercial radio is, where you know, they play 12 songs on rotation all day long until the audience dies with boredom. Our playlists are a thousand songs. And we have across the world about 50 DJs. And we say to them, you choose your playlist, play what you want. You know, and that sort of buccaneering spirit and sense of freedom connected to people when we launched it. And also we gave them mechanisms from the very beginning to be able to influence the playlist. And that sense of control and ownership was one of the things that surprised me. I mean, it was my idea to do it. And I wasn't surprised that people liked it. I was just surprised by the vehemence with which they said that they liked it, you know. I mean, I've worked in media since I was a student at Oxford in the 90, late 70s. And I've worked on big shows, small shows, radio, BBC, Channel 4, you name it, you know. We've never had a reaction to anything I've ever done in my career as positive and overwhelming as the reaction to the launch of Amazing Radio. So that was probably the biggest most surprising thing. And that was one of the things that reinforces this desire to keep going, you know. Sure, sure. And if you think of the journey you've been on, how have you changed in the process? What have you learned along the way? How hard it is to stay asleep at night? Because there's an awful lot of what I call 3.22 in the morning moments, lying awake wondering if you're mad. But then when you do finally get back to sleep and then wake up again, you know that you're not mad and you know you're going to carry on even if you are. So I've learned the supreme importance of determination. Um, I've also learned the limits of my strengths. You know, when I was working in the media as a radio and TV producer, you know, I used to write the script, direct them, produce them, edit them. I won awards. You know, I was good at it. And that was a real problem because my first business relied fundamentally on me and I tried various things to try and clone me, and it never worked. And the clients always wanted me to do it. So it was always a lifestyle business that would never scale. The difference with Amazing is I know what I can't do. Uh, you know, So I'm surrounded in Amazing with people who are better than I am at a myriad of different things. You know, uh, Everybody, I would say, I work with is better than I am at everything that they do. And that, therefore changes your relationship with the business it gives you the ability to think strategically because you know that the day-to-day -day is looked after uh, and it also means it can grow i mean for example i never make any decisions about any of the music that we play 
The right people to make decisions about what we play are Linton Smith, aged 24, born and raised in New Orleans, who's a hip-hop producer who lives in um, the Bronx, who's one of our DJs. It's um, Mark Ryan, who's our head of music, who's based in Newcastle, who has the best ears for dance music of anyone I've ever heard. It's people like that. It's Erin Franken, who's based in New Orleans, who runs our American radio station, who remembers every gig she's ever been to. She remembers the name of the band, the individual band members, and she remembers the tracks that they played and the order they played them in. That's what you want. They're better than I am. So that's, I guess, the the biggest lesson. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. What haven't we talked about that that would be good to touch on? Well, I guess it's about growth, really, is the next thing, you know, because I talked about how our problem is that although people like what we do when they hear about it, not enough people know about it. We're known in the music industry and I think respected because of the service that we provide. And in the UK, there is awareness of us, but there's not enough. And in the States and the rest of the world, there's not enough. I mean, people, musicians from all over the world upload content to our system. The problem is... It's not big enough. What we're trying to do next is to change that and to become a household name. You know, I suppose the question you didn't ask me would be, how are you going to do that? And and the answer is by continuing to raise investment from ultra high net worths and high net worth individuals, because it's such an added value way to do it. You don't just get the cash, you also get the Rolodex and the experience and the wisdom. And the, the other thing is we will, for the first time, you know, go and raise money from professional investors and tell the world that we exist. And hopefully that will eventually mean that, you know, the brand will become established as it deserves to be. The joke about Amazing is that the word was inspired by Virgin. And 18 months after I launched it, Virgin approached us and tried to take it over. They wanted to take Amazing Tunes, which was our first product, and rebrand it Virgin Tunes. After three months of negotiation, I turned them down on the basis that I'd rather have my own brand. Thank you very much. Well, I still would. Paul, it does sound like you might be right on the edge of really kind of expanding very quickly. A bigger topic than we'll have time to cover, but it does seem to be one of the questions there is, with all that happening, how do you how do you stay focused? How do you, you know, not end up overreaching? Oh, by doing the thing we talked about, which is delegation and surrounding yourself with people that are better than you are, you know. Um, I mean, I'm called the founder and CEO, but I intend to fire myself very soon. And there's another guy who's been working with us for seven or eight months now, I've known for 20 years, who's becoming the CEO, you know, and I will become just the founder. Because I think we've, we're at the stage now where it is about scale. And, and it's about doing things that I've never done before in my career. You know, I've never run a business that went from zero to 100. I've run businesses that went from zero to sort of 30. And actually, I think this business won't go to 100, it'll go to 1,000, you know. So you need that sort of, those sort of people around you. So I think that that's it. You know, and hopefully my role then becomes much more one of about proselytizing for the brand and making sure it stays true to its mission. Hmm. Well, Paul, that's been really fascinating. I absolutely look forward to seeing how amazing continues to develop. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a privilege and a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Purposeful Strategist. Please email any questions or suggestions to belden at mancus.com. In addition to being available on our website, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed this episode, we release a new episode weekly. Don't forget to subscribe. Thanks again. 
and join us soon for the next episode of The Purposeful Strategist.